Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is taken from Proverbs 18, verse 18. Casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. This proverb may well be connected to the previous verse about disputes and the necessity to hear both sides of the matter. The reality is that sometimes there is not a clear line as to which side is right. Even after hearing the matter out and the dispute remains to be decided. This proverb teaches that in these scenarios it is wise to let the Lord determine the matter by fair and honest casting of lots. This is attested to many times in scripture. The use of the umim and thumim by the high priest was prescribed in the Mosaic law and they were a form of casting lots to determine the Lord's will in regard to specific matters. The allotment of the land among the tribes was an important thing, and it was done by casting of lots. The allotment of duty among the priests and by family was done by casting of lots. Which commanders and troops would bear the burden of leading David's armies in the various months of the year was determined also in the same way. In, the, in Nehemiah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the countryside were divided by casting of lots. In, the, in each of these cases, the outcome of the lot determined matters of great importance to those who were bound by its decisions, where they would live, by which means they would support themselves, and how and when they would serve their country. The New Testament also approves the use of lots in determining who would replace Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot as one of the twelve. Matthias was chosen by casting lots. There are two aspects of this proverb that must be considered now. First, it concerns the mighty or the strong and keeping them apart. When there is more than one substantial claim to a particular item, to a particular right or a particular good, then those with the claims are tempted to duke it out. This is a messy thing. And the closer the claimants are to each other, the closer their relationship is, the messier it gets. This is why a property dispute tends to be much messier in a family squabble than between strangers or merely physical neighbors. However, this proverb does not limit the capability of the lot to keep the mighty apart, but to distance. It works even in the messy situations provided the following is understood. The second aspect of this proverb is that it implies an agreement by both parties to submit to the outcome of the lot. Thus both parties must recognize the authority of the arbitration and the fairness of the method. What this means first is that the claims truly have been justified and there's not been some finagling of the facts giving one or the other of the claimants a false claim. Second, 
that both sides agree to arbitration by casting lots. And third, that whatever the method, whether flipping a coin, drawing straws, or picking a number between 1 and 10, it must be done in an above-board fashion. It must be clear and obvious that the lot has not been manipulated or either side has been given an unfair advantage. For the Christian, recognition of God's sovereignty over the mundane, the proverb, like the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Recognition of that makes lot casting an excellent form of settling disputes. It is another tool in the belt of wisdom, which will give us a greater capability in as much as is possible to live at peace with all men. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins. In the United States, we are on the brink of another year-long-plus presidential debate. We've got candidates and political personalities coming out of the woodwork, or crawling out from under their rocks, depending on your perspective. As we see the political posturing of these candidates, pundits, spokesmen, and upstarts, identifying themselves as, or calling each other, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, libertarians, leftists, rightists, independents, environmentalists, or wackos, the Lord has seen fit to give us some instruction today about what it means to be his man in the public square. Mordecai the Jew was great in the land of Port in the land of Persia. Mordecai was feared and revered at the beginning of his career, as we read in chapter 9. And today we read in chapter 10, verse 2, that he was great. And in verse 3, that he was honored among the Jews. He was great and well received by them, and he sought the good of his people, and he spoke peace to all his countrymen, in verse 3. By the writing of the record given here in chapter 10, Mordecai had been established as a great man. He was feared and he was revered. Why? Why was he feared and why was he revered? He was known for being a man of his word and a man of his faith. Mordecai stood up for his principles. He stood up for his principles and what they meant. And what that meant was that he didn't back down from a fight for what was right. Mordecai stood up for what was right and he did not back down in the face of wickedness. He stood up to Haman's demand that he bow down to Haman because that violated his faith. He stood up for the Jews, even when their cause seemed lost. He stood up and he fought for what was right. And he did it in faith. And because he did it in faith, and because our God is sovereign and our God provides for us, 
God vindicated him for his righteousness and faith, giving him great authority and power in Persia. That is why he was feared and revered, because God vindicated him for, for his justice and righteousness. Today, a faithful Christian statesman of Mordecai's caliber would be just as feared. And perhaps he should be more so. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Mordecai was well received by his people. Why? Well, because he was not ashamed of identifying with them. He was called Mordecai the Jew. He was known for standing up for the Jews, the Israelites. He was known for saving them. They were greatly blessed by him. The Persians' fear of Mordecai greatly increased their respect and honor for Judaism, so much so that many of them were converted to it. We read in chapter 8, verse 17. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. God had vindicated Mordecai. Church history has given us many examples of the same things happening in the history of the church. When Constantine was converted, Christianity spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire. For many, fear of the Christians and the church was their motivating factor. By fear, they were driven into the ark. They were driven into safety. They were driven into salvation. Fear of the, of, of the, of the church, fear of Christ, fear of the, the Christians led them to fall down at his feet. When the missionaries were sent to the Jutes and the Saxons and the Angles, on the Isle of Britannia, they sought to convert the people. But much of the history, which we read in St. Bede's book, the, the Ecclesiastical History of the English Peoples, much of that history has to do with the conversions of royalty, because the people would follow their leaders. And most wouldn't give the messengers of the gospel a second audience without the permission or blessing of their king or queen. And when the missionaries were successful in converting their king or queen, they didn't have a choice but to listen again to the, the message of the gospel. And the missionaries greatly spread the gospel, and many converted to Christianity in this fashion. Even today, missionaries seek to instruct and convert the enemies of the gospel, but when they convert the leaders of tribes and the, the leaders of groups of people that don't have any clue about the gospel, their impact is farther reaching than when they, imper when, than when they convert somebody who's far down on the rung, farther down the rung, said the letter. These truths about those who are leaders in the church and those who spread the faith have made them well received by their people. We know their, them by the names such as Saint Paul, Saint Boniface, Saint Patrick, Saint Gregory, or Alfred the Great, 
Some of their stories are harsh. Some of, some of the, the way things happen in church history are messy. They may have a few blemishes on their record, but we are their people, and they are our people, and we honor them. They are well received by us because they are our leaders. They were doing God's work in the world, and they were building God's church here in the world. So like Mordecai, we honor them. Mordecai sought the good of his people and spoke peace to all of his countrymen. These are the things that Mordecai did. First we had what he was. He was feared and revered. Then he was well received by his people. Now we know what he did. He sought the good of his people and he spoke peace to all his countrymen. Notice that these two things are not mutually exclusive Seeking the good of God's people, seeking the good of the church, seeking the good of the Israelites was not mutually exclusive from speaking peace to his countrymen. Mordecai's faith and his standing up for his people brought peace to Persia. Mordecai's protection and faithful practice of Judaism was a blessing to his secular counterparts, or his idolatrous counterparts, his countrymen. This was because his relationship with God gave him the footing to sustain his role as an eminent Jewish-Persian statesman. His relationship with God gave him the footing to sustain his role as an eminent Jewish-Persian statesman. What that means is Mordecai's faith gave him wisdom so that he was successful in reigning Persia, bringing peace to the land. The examples I've already given in the church are well attested. The spread of the gospel has much to do with successful secular ruling, civic leading. When leaders change their paradigm from unfaithful, idolatrous worship to worship of the living and true God, it stands to reason that their methods and administrations will result in greater peace and blessing to the land. In this, Mordecai was a type of Jesus Christ. Mordecai was great in the land of Persia. In being great in the land of Persia, he was a type of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true King. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, having all authority in heaven and earth given into his hand. He has God's signet ring. Mordecai was great. Jesus is greater. Mordecai was a type. Jesus is the anti-type. Mordecai reigned for a time and brought peace and honor to Israel the Lord's people, delivering them from their enemies. But Jesus Christ will reign till the end of time, for all eternity, and bring peace and honor to the church, God's people, delivering it from its enemies. Mordecai was great. Jesus is greater. Mordecai was an example. 
This Mordecai is also a witness or an example for us in the Christian era. He has given us a wonderful example of Christian statesmanship. This has application for, for politics and leadership today. Because though we have Christ, we still live in a fallen world and we still have battles to wage. There are practical ramifications of Mordecai's leadership. Things, his, his faith, his leadership had traction. It hit the ground running. Mordecai successfully counteracted evil. He successfully battled for the Lord. And we have much to learn from him and his rule, especially in contrast with Haman. Let's look at Ahasuerus' glory. Ahasuerus was the king of Persia. He had great glory. But there is a significant difference in his glory in the story of Esther, pre-Mordecai and Esther and their victory over Haman, and post-Mordecai and Esther and their victory over Haman. Pre-Mordecai and Esther, his glory was glorious, but it was bittersweet. He had great wealth and power, but his wife wouldn't obey him, and he had to undergo the embarrassment of banishing her in chapter 1. In chapter 2, his own servants, Big Than and Teresh, plotted against his life. In chapter 3, his right-hand man led him to go along with a plan to increase the wealth of the kingdom through wicked and unjust plundering that perplexed his subjects. And then in chapter 7, Haman, his right-hand man, betrayed him. The man whom he'd lifted up to, to be above all the other people in his kingdom, betrayed him. At least in Ahasuerus' eyes, and in reality. But Ahasuerus' glory with Mordecai and Esther is different. It's good, and it's sweet. Instead of Vashti embarrassing him, Esther found favor in the eyes of all who looked upon her. In chapter 2, he was glorified by his wife. Mordecai saved his life in chapter 2. Esther and Mordecai together opened the eyes of the king to Haman's wicked plot, setting what was wrong right in chapters 4 through 7. And then again, Mordecai and Esther determined a way to undo the evil of the plot in chapters 8 through 9. And they brought joy and peace to the kingdom, gladness and feasting. They brought a glory that was good and sweet that built up the kingdom. Mordecai established a long and glorious reign on behalf of King Ahasuerus. Mordecai's glory honored Ahasuerus. It raised him, raised him up. Haman's glory brought Ahasuerus bitter bitterness. The treasuries of the king were blessed by Mordecai's administration. 
The treasuries of the king are blessed, and they grow during the administration of Mordecai by the far more equitable and peaceable measures of imposing tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Kingdoms need to run. They need money to run. Kingdoms need money to have, that's, that's the glory of a king, and part of that is his wealth. Haman had a plot for giving wealth to the king. It was to unjustly attack and plunder the, the Israelites. Mordecai had a much more righteous plan. And Mordecai brought wealth to the, the kingdom. Now notice one thing about this. We've talked about Ahasuerus' glory, pre-Mordecai and Esther, with Haman, and Ahasuerus' glory, with Mordecai and Esther. Much of the time, most of the book, chapters 3 through 9, these competing influences, Haman and Mordecai and Esther, were concurrent. They were happening at the same time. Esther was chosen as his queen in chapter 2. Mordecai was raised up in chapter 3. And so we have a period of several years in which Mordecai and Esther and Haman were operating their influences on the king concurrently at the same time. This is the essence of story. Esther is a story. The struggle between good and evil is the essence of story. The, 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 the rise of a problem and its solution, that's the story. Mordecai and Esther had to face their enemies face to face. They couldn't just sit on the sidelines and wait for Mordecai and wait for Haman and Ahasuerus to trip themselves up. That wasn't in God's story. Instead, they stepped in and extricated Ahasuerus from Haman's control while casting Haman out of favor. And of course they did all of this by the Lord's providence and His help. Chapter 10 is the epilogue of the book. But as you can see, it's very short. It's only three verses. Once Mordecai and Esther have gained the upper hand and the influence in the kingdom, the story has drawn to a close. The struggle has come to a cease. Which brings us to what all of this means. What's, what's the story about? What does this mean? What does this do for us? And part of what this means for us is Mordecai was great, but Jesus was greater. How much more should a Christian statesman have a greater impact than Mordecai did? Mordecai shows us some of the possibilities to which we might attain or supersede. Persia was nothing like America. It was a monarchy, a dictatorship. And the majority of people there worshipped false gods. America is a Republican, a Democratic Republic. And it's presumably Christian. 96, 94% of the people in our land claim to be Christians. As Christians in a free land, with the right 
and responsibility to meet and worship God freely, and with the right and the freedom to serve our country in many different ways and on many different levels, we ought to be far more effective in our faith than we are. We need to confess this. Mordecai merely had the promises of the Messiah, but we have the fulfillment. We have Christ. Mordecai had the prophets, but we have the Messiah, who the prophets were, were prophesying about. God's revelation is progressive. God reveals himself over time. We have more light and more blessings than our ancestors did. It follows that we have a greater responsibility to live in that light. We are so easily distracted by the bells and the whistles. Every advance in technology is a double-edged sword. It slices both ways. We can sacrifice it to God and live accordingly, offering our lives as a living sacrifice to God, using the technology for His glory and for the advance of His kingdom. But Satan is a master of twisting good things and applying them for evil purposes. He knows how to lie to us. He knows how to muddle up our thinking. He knows how to trip us up with the details and take our eyes off the goal and the prize. The example for us here is that it is God's great kindness and grace to us that he has given us battles to fight. And we must fight them. He's, he's left us vulnerable. But that's his grace. How is that possible? Well, it's his grace because he promises that he won't tempt us beyond what we are able. He promises that he'll be with us even to the end of the age. He promises us that the war is won even though we're still fighting battles. The Christian life is a vital thing. It's a vibrant thing. It's not stagnant. Christianity is a battle. It's a war. And as we live it, we must strive to live it gloriously. If we desire God's blessing and great glory, the path there lies through the middle of a battlefield. We must take up our weapons and hack and hew our way through that battlefield. We must not become complacent. We must not slumber at our posts. The grace is that glory is still to be had. The war is not over. Mordecai's example shows us the potential greatness and glory to be had in fighting the war faithfully. Now let's look at what his example says to us about Christian civic duty. Christianity suffers from a great dualism. We're told that there, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We're also told to set our minds on things above and not on the things on the earth. But then we're left here and now living on the earth. God has given us work to do here on the earth. So, as Bunyan's great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, makes abundantly clear, we're just passing through. This is not where our citizenship is. 
However, it is very important to note that what we do here and now on the earth is important. We are to conduct ourselves here and now on the earth as Christians because we are Christians. This is the great dualism. The earth is temporary, but it is important because God gives us commandments that are to be obeyed in this life. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your mind, is to be fulfilled in your life now on this earth. With all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Also, Paul tells us in Colossians 3, verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And in verses 23 to chapter 4, verse 1, speaking to bond servants, Paul says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid what he has done, and there is no partiality. Notice that there is doing going on. Whatever you do, that doing is happening on the earth in this life. And starting in verse chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says to masters, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That's the point of all this dualism. We're looking forward to the end, to the goal. Our, our aim is at Jesus Christ up in heaven. We have a master. We're passing through, yes. Our citizenship is there in heaven. But he's given us marching orders here on the earth. Where am I going with all this as regards Christian civic duty? You might ask. Well, one of the things that men do on the earth here, one of the whatever you do's is politics. Yikes, that's scary. For us, politics is a bad word. It's secular and scary to say the least. In many ways, we don't like to touch it with a 10-foot pole. But we need to get over this. We must acknowledge our Lord wherever we are. And sometimes that means we need to do it in the public square. Whenever we're in the public square, we need to do it. We're not in the public square all of the time. But some of the time we are. And when we are there... We must acknowledge our Lord. Remember, Mordecai was an official in the king's palace. Our faith does not exclude us from public office. We are not separationists like the Amish or the Mennonites, where they don't even vote because they don't view that their, their, world, their, their faith is part of this world. That's not our faith. Our faith has traction in this world. Our faith does not exclude us from public office. However, it does demand that we remain faithful to God if we find ourselves there. 
Our faith also does not preclude us from exercising our civil rights. For example, Mordecai certainly exercised his power in Persia, but he did it for God, as a master who was under a master. Also, Paul used his Roman citizenship on multiple occasions for various purposes. It doesn't change in the New Testament. As Christians in a free and presumably Christian nation, how much more ought we to be willing to stand up for truth and righteousness in exercising our civil rights? How much more ought we be willing to stand up for truth and righteousness in, our, in exercising our civil rights? They're not coming at us to kill us if we say we stand for Jesus. Haman was going for Mordecai to kill him for doing that. Paul was attacked many times. He was stoned. Ultimately, he was beheaded. He died for his faith. That is not facing us here now. It may eventually one day, but right now it's not. How much more ought we to be bold in standing up for our faith and exercising our civil rights? Our right to free speech, our right to vote, our right to run for office, our right to worship. God has blessed us greatly and powerfully in this country and in our heritage. We should not sit on the sidelines and idly hand over the reins of authority to those who refuse to kiss the sun. Because if we do, he will be angry. And we will suffer the covenantal consequences of the punishment of our nation. Instead, we should be preparing for battle and waging war on God's enemies foreign and domestic. The kind of war I'm talking about is not fought with swords and shields or with machine guns and hand grenades or even atomic bombs. What I'm talking about here is a culture war. Remember that Christian dualism I mentioned before? Well, this is where that comes into play. This is a war for the hearts and the souls of our neighbors. For the hearts and the souls of those who we walk next to on the streets. This is a war for the truth of the gospel and the proclamation of our Lord's resurrection and what that means for this world. We are passing through this world. And we are running a race. And the goal line is the presence of Jesus Christ. We cannot take our eyes off of him. We wage this war by coming here every week and worshiping Him. We wage this war by living in His forgiveness and extending His forgiveness. We strike fear in the hearts of His enemies with acts of service and kindness and gentleness and peace and love. We heap coals of burning fire on their heads. And vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Our job is to feed our enemy and clothe him. Christ is our commander, and he reigns from heaven above. So let us follow him 
And we, and when we are given a podium from which to dictate justice or the laws of the land, then let us follow him there. When we are given a ballot and the opportunity to vote for him, then let us follow him there, right into the ballot box. I'm reminded of the song from that old Christmas movie, White Christmas, with Bing Crosby. We'll follow the old man wherever he wants to go, wherever he wants to go, wherever he wants to go, as long as he stays away from the battle's grave. The only difference is that the grave is exactly where we signed on the, 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 the bottom line. The grave is exactly where we signed on the dotted line. We died with Christ so that we don't have to die. We died with Christ, now let us live for Him. And one more thing. If God is God, if God is the creator of creation, if God is the governor over all natural processes, if He's in control of economics, if He's in control of science, if He's in control of nature, in control of human emotions, relationships, governments, civics, politics, etc., 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 then life lived in accordance with His law, in accordance with truth, in accordance with Christ, in accordance with ultimate reality, is more powerful. It is more effective. It is more efficient. Life lived in accordance with God's truth will create more good, more glory, and more honor than life lived any other way. Here and now, in this world, and on this earth. This has political ramifications. Jesus died in the public square so that Christianity could live there. I leave you with chapter 10, verse 3. Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Politics in our nation are messy and ugly, and they often bring out the worst in our nation. Much of this is because of the idolatry in our land, in that our nation has rejected the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the public square. The church has been marginalized, and faithful Christians are openly mocked and ridiculed. However, we can take heart in the fact that all of this is smoke and mirrors. They deny the truth. They deny the fact that Jesus is reigning in heaven, and he will consume them in an instant, if and when he so desires. As Christians, we are passing through, because we've laid hold of a much better and greater thing than they can even imagine. We've latched onto the infinite in Christ. We have been united to God in Jesus. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? 
This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.